Ecclesiastes 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And if you are turned there, would you stand together with me as we do out of honor of God's word as I read our passage of scripture this morning for study. Ecclesiastes 3. And I know the song is going to come to your mind. To everything, turn, turn, turn. Right? Remember that song, The Birds? You're dating yourself, but this is where it comes from. Everything stolen from the Bible. Just remember that. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time of war and a time of peace. And what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. And he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And Father, we humbly ask for just the help and assistance of your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, as we open up the Word of God, we by faith acknowledge that that is exactly what it is, that it is your words, God spoken to us, to be profitable in our lives for doctrine and reproving us for correction, for training in righteousness, that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Lord, we humbly and honestly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Work in each and every one of our hearts and minds and souls this morning. Prepare us. Make us alert and attentive and sensitive to what you want to say, God, to us personally as an individual. We pray you'd bless your word. And we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that we wouldn't hear wiser, persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking to our hearts this morning. Teach us, Lord, we ask now, and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what does it mean to be resourceful? I looked up the definition, particularly of that word, as I was thinking through and pondering over this passage this week, the word resourceful can be defined as follows, uh, able to deal effectively with situations and problems, having ability to find ways to overcome difficulty and find solutions, or making good use of all things. I particularly like that last part, making good use of all things. You know, there are a lot of things about God that incredibly impress me. 
Uh, I find the Lord amazing in who he is and what he does and his capability and his workings and his nature and his attributes. But one of the things about me that has always uh, just you know, been really impressed by the Lord is that God is very resourceful. God is extremely resourceful. God is able to deal effectively with situations and problems. God is very able to find ways to overcome seeming difficulties and human dilemmas and, and problems that we create and, and to find solutions. And, and most importantly, what really impresses me is that God has a way of working as I've watched him work in my life, as I watch him work in your lives and I've seen him at work among us in the world. I find that God really has a way to make good use of all Things. And particularly, I think that God uses all things in life's experiences under the sun. And by that, I mean life experiences on this earth. And that's kind of a, <coughs> excuse me, if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of one of the theme phrases that Solomon keeps talking about, under the sun. The idea is life on the earth. And God has this amazing way of using all of life's experiences under the sun to bring us, hear me, into a deeper relationship with him. God is resourceful in that he uses all the experiences of life to bring us initially into a relationship with him. And I find in my life, and as I watch what God does in your life and the lives of others, that God uses all the experiences and events and things that happen in life. And so many times he's using all those things even for the believer to just bring us into deeper and deeper relationship with him, that we might know him better, that he might work in our lives and draw us closer to him, make us more dependent, let us see more of who he really is in relationship to who he's supposed to be in our lives. And really, that is what this passage, in a sense, Solomon is, is sort of honing in on in this particular section of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, again, just as sort of a backdrop, since we haven't been studying Ecclesiastes together, Solomon, at this point, you know, chapter 1 and 2, he's recounting, basically, his own search for the meaning of life. And Solomon, remember, was someone who had incredible power, who had incredible wealth. The wealth of Solomon was so immense, the Bible says that in his day, that, that silver and gold were more common than the rocks in Palestine. I mean, his wealth far superior, superseded any other king before him. He had incredible power and resources, the expansion of his kingdom. And Solomon in chapters 1 and 2 is kind of just, it's almost as if he's older in life and he's, he's looking back now and in hindsight, he's recounting his experiences. And I think particularly the season in his life where initially his heart was so tender towards God and he loved the Lord. Remember Solomon early on, it says he gave a thousand burnt offerings. I mean, he loved the Lord. But yet Solomon, when the power and the wealth and the influence and the prominence and the prosperity all started coming into his life, he then started trying, it seems, to utilize those things to try and find fulfillment and meaning in all kinds of other things. And he found the vanity, the emptiness the futility of trying to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in his life in all types of other things. And he describes in chapters 1 and 2 his own experiences, how he searched for it in knowledge and education and 
learning all types of philosophy and different ways of thought and world culture. And he says, you know, I, tr I tried all those things and, and I found that they ultimately, they were meaningless. They were futile, he says. They were like chasing after the wind and trying to grab hold of the wind, which is an impossible experience. It's a vain experience. And then he goes on to describe in chapter 2 how he then searched for it and other things. He says, you know what? So I, then I gave myself to pleasure and to fulfillment and entertainment from, again, you know, booze and parties to bringing in exotic animals and apes and, and all types of different things that he could afford and, and, and purchase and acquire for himself. In fact, if you notice back in chapter 2, even go back to chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon makes this declaration. He says, chapter 2, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure that's an intense statement do you hear what Solomon's saying he's saying listen I tried the experiment anything possible that you could experiment indulge in enjoy grant to yourself give to yourself take for yourself he said been there done that the whole gamut he says there is nothing that my eyes desired that I withheld from myself Anything my heart wanted, any pleasure, fulfillment, possession, satisfaction, I took it all in. I tried it all. I've done the experiment. And he said, and here's what I found, his repeated refrain. He says, it was like chasing the wind. It was like vanity. The Hebrew literally for vanity is the term soap bubbles. And the idea is, if you've ever blown bubbles with your kids, right? A bubble has that kind of beautiful glistening. But then when you go to grab, you ever try and catch a soap bubble and... It just, you find there's nothing to it. As soon as you try and grab hold of it, it just goes away. And that's the idea. He says, man, the most beautiful, attractive, seemingly fulfilling things that everybody wants and desires to have. He says, I went after all of it. I had a chance to try and experiment with everything. And he says, I always found it never had substance to it. It always lacked something. It was like grabbing hold of a soap bubble. It still left me empty. I was still unfulfilled. I still felt like it was meaningless and monotonous. And, and, and Solomon describes how he went through that phase where his heart was tender towards God. Then he go and tried everything in the world. And ultimately his heart came back around to the Lord. But it's almost as if now he's recounting these things. And he comes to chapter 3 now. And he begins in chapter 3 to turn the corner a little bit because he starts to talk about the fact that ultimately he realized the sovereignty of God over life's affairs and how God is the one that's superintending over everything, the experiences and all that we go through in this life and how ultimately God is using all of those things to reach out to us initially and to continue to reach out to us and draw us closer to him ultimately. And he realized and he gets to the end of the book, he says, look, here's what I realized I can reduce it all to this. We should fear God, serve him, and keep his commandments. Life's all about letting its experiences draw us closer to having a true encounter and experience with God because he realized that's the only thing that really fulfills. And that's the real purpose for everything. That's why he says in the end of verse 11 there, I found out that God's put eternity in the hearts of men. And that's the struggle. Because he says time, time, time. And we live in a world where there's time and there's a time for this and a time for that. But yet there's this conflict in the soul of every human being because in the middle of living in the time realm, there's an eternal thing in our heart that nags at us because there's a God-shaped void that we're trying to fulfill 
and we realize all life's experiences don't fulfill that. They just contribute and facilitate to us realizing, oh, it's about something weightier. It's about something eternal, about having a relationship with the God who created us and has a plan for our lives. So look how he begins here in, in verse 1. He says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. So what he's going to talk about in these first eight verses is basically sort of the balance of life experiences. Through observation and personal experience in his own life, Solomon come to learn that, you know what, we kind of experience a little bit of everything as we take our journey through this life. And everything has its prescribed time and every purpose under heaven has its set limit to and its duration. Uh, and, and God allows us to experience things and much of what we experience really many a times is completely out of our control. That God's sovereign and he by his providence and his permissiveness allows things to unfold in his prearrangement in what unfolds on this earth and the experiences we all go through. And many times we really have no control over those things. We're just experiencing things and then we're just trying to respond to them in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and that would be most profitable to us. And, and please let, let me say this up front. Don't misunderstand. Solomon is not talking about being fatalistic. That's, all, that's, not the, that's not the mindset here. He's not saying, well, everything's just going to happen, so whatever, and, and fatalism. And, and fatalism is a dangerous heart attitude because fatalism basically says, well, what's going to happen is going to happen, so who cares, and I'm not responsible anyway. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we are accountable and we are responsible. And fatalism just says, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen and I have no control and so whatever and who cares and I'm not responsible. So, hey, if that's your lot, sorry for you. I got a better lot. And, so, and it leads to a really selfish, cynical, distorted perspective. And it wants us to remove personal accountability and responsibility for our lives, which the Bible says that we do have. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God superintends over all things, but we do have a balanced responsibility and an accountability before our Creator and the one who we ultimately must stand before to give account. What Solomon is saying here is, in essence, look, much of what takes place, he says, it's the things that God allows us, the various experiences that go on, and we just have to be aware of them and realize that in their blended, balanced forms, they all contribute something of value and purpose. They have a purpose. He says here in verse 1, to everything, everything, every different experience that we can go through, he says, to everything, there is a season. And that word season there literally refers to a, a set time period. A duration of time. Everything has a set time period. Just like natural seasons, there's, there's winter, and then there's spring, and then there's summer, and then there's fall. And in nature, God's created season for a purpose. And those seasons do not last forever, correct? The season has a set duration. It's a set limited period of time, and ultimately the season does change. So if you don't like winter, the wonderful thing about seasons is, is if you're in a season that you don't like and you don't like winter, the wonderful thing is the way God's created seasons is you can know, hey, ultimately this season is going to change. It's no season is perpetual. No season lasts forever. And you can take heart in knowing, hey, this is the season I'm in. I'm not crazy about it, but there is coming a new season soon. And the same with life. To everything, everything. 
there's a season. Are you in a season you don't like now? I've been there. <laughs> to everything, there's a season. But the season's not perpetual. There is a new season that will come. The important thing is what? Is recognizing the season you're in and rather than resisting it and fighting against it, because you can't change it, is to just yield from the season you're in and realize it has some purpose. It has a reason to it. And again, we don't live by explanations. We live by promises. God doesn't always explain the purpose for every... We live by promises and we know that that season has a purpose. So he's going to describe how we experience these different things in our lives and he mentions a list in verse 2 to 8 there and he says, look, but all these things, even these things, these experiences, he says, they have a set time period. There's a duration to them. They don't last perpetually. They last for a set and limited period of time he then goes on, verse 1, to say, and there's also a time, and the word there, time, indicates an appointed hour. There's an appointed hour for every purpose under heaven. There is, God says, an appointed hour, a due time, something on God's agenda and calendar as we go through many different things in this fallen world with sin and problems, and then just the reality of this is life it's life experience and God says there is there's an appointed hour in all of our lives for all the different things we experience but notice those things have a purpose for every purpose under heaven there is nothing that God allows me to go through nothing that God lets you experience that is without a purpose I may not understand the purpose you may not initially see the purpose, but God is the master of taking everything and letting it still have purpose. Even the sinful, evil things that happen in our life, even those things, God still has a purpose in them. What we studied on Wednesday nights with the book of Genesis has been a clear indication. As we've been studying the life of Joseph, again, mistreated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, you know, gets there to Egypt. He's lied about, falsely accused, goes from a place of prosperity to a prison cell and, and perpetual problems and difficulties. And this man was doing nothing wrong. He was a lover of God and setback and problem and pain and disappointment and difficulty. No explanation. Joseph didn't live by explanations. He lived by promises. God doesn't always give us explanations. Nowhere does the Bible say God will tell us why to everything. The whole book of Job basically is one simple thing. Job says, why, why, why? God never answers why, but in the end, God shows him what? God's enough. And God, I learned more of you through this and you sustained me through this. And ultimately, the season in Job's life transitioned in God's prescribed time and it became something different for him. And, and so in your life, in my life, listen, everything that you've experienced, everything you do experience, there is an appointed hour for every purpose under heaven and God has a purpose. He has a purpose in what he's doing in your life. And now verse two to eight, as I said, he basically sets forth 14 uh, sort of contrasts. They're almost like exact opposites, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time of war, a time of peace. They're contrasts sort of set forth 
And again, this repetition of the word, an appointed time for this, an appointed time for this, and what he's doing is letting us see, look, all these different experiences in measure and moderation, we're going to go through all of them at different times and appointed hours in our lives, yet God's superintending over all those things. And he has a purpose for them and he will make them have a good purpose because just like Joseph, remember at the end of his life when his brothers felt so horrible because of the things they put him through, Joseph was able to look at them and say, look, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good. His brothers, when he spoke to them, he said, look, you didn't send me here to Egypt. Technically they did, but he said, but you didn't send me here, God sent me here to save many people alive because God takes everything and he uses it for a purpose. So he describes now all these different experiences. Notice many of which we don't even have control over. We just experience his events in our life and we go through them. He says, first of all, verse two, a time to be born. Did you have any control over that? Absolutely not. You have no control over when you're born. A time to be born and there's also a time to die. So again, the Bible makes it very clear. Again, the, the experience of the circle of life. Uh, Psalm 139 says that God knit us together in our mother's womb. And it says that all the days ordained for us were written down before one of them ever came to be. From the moment of conception, God determines and knows in advance the exact number of days that we will live on this earth. From the moment that we are born and we begin to experience physical life to the moment that we die and we have the cessation of life in this physical realm and then we enter into the eternal realm, we really have no control over these things. A time to be born and a time to die. Again, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 that it's appointed for man to die once and the judgment. That's the critical thing. Because I have no control over my birth and in a sense no control over my death, God says all I'm asking you to do is you need to be ready for your death because it will come. It will come. Here's what's interesting. Technically, though I have no control over my physical birth, there is a birth I do have control over because Jesus said what? In relation to the fact that it's appointed for everybody to die once and then face the judgment, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, he said to a very religious man, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's what? born again I have no control over my physical birth but there is a birth that you do have control over and that is your need to be born again to have a spiritual birth why? so that you are ready for your death when the time of your death comes and here he says a time to be born a time to die he goes on verse 2 to say a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted again to, to plant a time to establish he uses agricultural pictures here to sow seed to to begin to plant a crop to ultimately reap a harvest so there's a time again planting is the beginning of something it's the start of something so and there's a time there are times he says there's an appointed hour to start things there's a time to establish things to begin things to you know to to start a family to plant a business, to plant a ministry. There, there are times, appointed hours to start and begin things. But he says also there as well are also times to pluck up what is planted, which again is the opposite. So there is a time when the right thing to do is to uproot something that was started. There is a time when the right thing to do is to say, you know what, this may have been something that was started before, but you know what, the very best thing we could do right now 
is uproot this and put an end to it. And he says, there's a time for that. There are times when it's right to begin and there's also a time when the best thing to do, the healthiest thing to do for the field and its fruitfulness is, you know, we need to uproot this. Yes, we planted it, but now we need to uproot this. And there's a time for that in our lives, in the different experiences of things that we go through. Again, recognizing those things. He goes on, verse 3, to say that there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, many people read, oh, that's horrible, the time to kill. The Bible certainly forbids and tells us that God does not ever intend us to commit premeditated murder. and That's not the idea here. But there is a time legitimately before a just and holy God when it is the right thing. What does it mean to kill? It means to destroy or put something to death. There are times where God would lead his people into war and it was the right thing. He says down below, there is a time of war. There are times you cannot dispute that God led the children of Israel to initiate a war, to engage in war because of the condition of a people or, or, or a society or a particular leader that had become such a plague and a detriment to humanity on the earth that God said they need, in a sense, they, they, they need to be put down. They need to be rid from what they are doing on the earth. Again, and in war, you know, it is the right thing. There are many people, I, my heart grieves for them. They served in Vietnam, one of the world wars, and, and they struggle with the guilt of what they did in submission to their commanding officer when they had to kill and take the life of someone else in war. Is war horrible? Yes. But there is a time, God says. There is a time where such things must happen. Again, capital punishment. The Bible teaches capital punishment. God says in the book of Genesis... If man sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. God said that. God said when a human being sinks so low in their condition where they devalue the life of another human being and they are willing to selfishly destroy someone who's created in the image of God, God says then that person has sunk into a level morally where that person needs to be removed from the planet as a result of that. Now, can they be forgiven? Absolutely. We're not talking about somebody's eternal destiny. See, this is where we struggle with We're not talking about somebody's eternal destiny. We're talking about somebody's present physical life. And God says, there's a time. If somebody broke into my home and was threatening my family, to me, I would have a distorted sense of love if somebody was going to kill my family and I did not seek to defend my family. To me, I have a distorted sense of love. If somebody was going to harm or rape or hurt one of my children, listen, we need to be careful to realize things in balance of how God sets them before us. Life is about balance. He says, there's a time for this, but he also says there's a time to heal. And what's healing? It's the exact opposite. In the same way, to kill means to put something to death. To heal means to seek to save something, to salvage something, to restore something so that it might survive. And there's a time. And as Christians of all people, we should be leading the way and pioneering the way to help restore things that are dying to help in situations where something needs to be saved or salvaged, to help something survive and continue, whether it's a person's life or a situation, we should be actively involved in love and mercy and grace that God's given to us and compassion to say, you know what, hey, how can I bring healing to this person? How can I salvage this marriage? How can I help to bring some healing and resolution and let God use me in that way because that's the heart of God and there's a time to do that. 
There's a time to let things die, but there's a time to step in and say, no, we've got to salvage this. We need to intervene somehow and try and bring healing into a situation. He goes on, verse 3, to say that there's a time to break down. The idea, again, like to bring down a wall, to take something apart. There's a time to break something down, to dismantle it, to, to remove it. The idea is there's a time to remove things. And there's also a time to build up. There's a time to restore things. Again, sort of the, the same idea here, just in different terms. There's a time to put an end to something. There's a wall. Sometimes, you know what? It's time to take this wall. There's a time to break this down. Uh, this does not serve the purpose. And there's a time now to put an end to this. And God says there's also a time to build up, to restore. That is to have a restorative approach to something because something needs to be uh, you know, helped so that it comes back to life, that it is brought back. And again, even from an emotional perspective, you know what? There's a time to break down. There's a time to break down. There is a time in life when it is the right thing to do to just break down and fall apart. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a time emotionally if you're to just break down and to just let go. And you know what? Sometimes I believe that can be the inception of then somebody beginning to be built back up. Because sometimes somebody needs to fall apart first. So God can then lovingly step in and help build them back up and restore. And if they never feel the freedom to just break down and let go and fall apart and tear down all the walls emotionally, until they let that just break down and fall apart, it's hard for the love of God and the help of God to invade and to begin to then build their life back up and put it back into the places where it needs to be as God is a God of restoration. He goes on, verse 4, to say that there's a time to weep. And a time to laugh. Again, what are those? Those are emotional releases. A time to weep. We see that Jesus wept. He wept over the city of Jerusalem because of its spiritual depravity and its rejection of God and God's ministry among it. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus when he saw the death process and the pain it was causing people's heart. Jesus wept. There is a time, God says, that it's the right thing to do to weep, not to hold back from weeping. There's a time to weep. You know, I don't know how many times I have in my life experience had people say on occasion, you know, I'm sorry when they're crying or they apologize for shedding a tear or getting emotional. And my typical response to that is, listen, God created your tear ducts. God created your tear ducts. It, there's a time to weep as a man and as a woman. There's a time to just release that emotional duress that we are under in times when we're grieving or something painful or sorrowful has happened. He says, by the same token, there's a time to laugh. Proverbs tells us that laughter is like good medicine for the bones. There's a time. There's a time to be able to enjoy and to laugh hilariously. And, and God says it's actually therapeutic. Proverbs says it's medicine for the bones. Scientists have discovered that it actually takes less muscles to smile than it does to frown. It is more exhausting to be, to be sad. And when a person laughs, good endorphins and things are released into their body. It's therapeutic and medicinal, God says. There's a time. He also says there's a time to mourn, that is to grieve like at a funeral. And there's a time to dance, to celebrate like there's a wedding. What's the key? The key is very simply this, is I should never be laughing when someone else is mourning. And I should never be celebrating when somebody else is suffering. I should be sensitive to the hour that I'm in. 
There's a time when, you know what, it's a somber moment and, and it's a funeral and people are mourning. And, you know, in those occasions, we should be sensitive. And that, that's, the, that's the appointed hour. It's a time of grief. It's a time of sorrow and suffering and we should join in that. And he says there's also times as well when the right thing to do, the appropriate thing to do, is not to be, oh, I'm so spiritual, I never smile or crack a joke I'm, because I'm spiritual. He says, no, there's a time that to laugh and to celebrate and to dance is the right thing to do. You know, people always ask sometimes, you know, can Christians dance? You know, is that okay? And what, you know, are Christians allowed to dance? You know, the old adage. From what I've seen, uh, can Christians dance? Some can. Some can't. <laughs> I was at the Harvest Crusade last night with some bumping music. And I, some Christians should not dance. Especially now with iPhones and all that YouTube stuff. You know, people, you know, look at this joker. You know, people are taking video. But there's a time, God says. These things, they have their purpose in the balance of our lives. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Again, in Israel, they would cast away stones, pick up and cast away stones from a field to make it more fertile. You know, tradition says that you know, of course, it's tradition that God sent forth an angel with rocks and stones to spread them throughout the earth. And he accidentally tripped and dropped them all over Palestine. And if you've ever been to the land of Israel or seen pictures of it, you know, it is a really rocky terrain, lots of stones and rocks. So in that day, for their fields to be fertile and them to be productive, they had to go out, as it says here, and they had to cast away stones because those things were hindering productivity. They were hindering fruitfulness. And sometimes in our lives, God says, you know what, there are some obstacles, some things. You got to clear, you got to get rid of some of this stuff. These things are hindering productivity in your life. This is stone, it's weighing you down. You got to get rid of this. You got to clear these things out of your life. Now, interesting, again, then in balance, he says, but there's also a time to gather stones. They would gather the same stones and use them to build walls, to build houses. So again, the same things that would have seemed unproductive, God can, there's a time where you can take things that maybe weren't productive at once and now they can be productive in a different setting. What's important? Make sure you're paying attention to the timing on things. What's God doing? Not just what does people say or what does my own perception think. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll direct your paths. So there was a time to clear away and God says there's also a time to gather stones to use them for another purpose. He says, verse 5, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So there is a time to embrace. There's a time when the right thing to do is to embrace someone. To embrace a situation. And God says there is also a time when the right thing to do is to refrain from embracing. When you should have self-control and you should not embrace. And you should give space. And you should back off. And the right thing to do, God says, sometimes even in relationships or opportunities, sometimes there's an opportunity and you should embrace it. Embrace it. God set the open door. It's there. Embrace it. God says there's other times when you know what? Pay attention, pray, be sensitive, and you, you need to refrain from embracing that opportunity because it would not be best. Same way with relationships and people. There's a time to embrace, to hug, to console. And God says there's other times in situations and dynamics of life and he says when the right thing to do is to refrain, to not embrace, to step back from a relationship or to have self-control in a dating relationship and to refrain from embracing. There's an appointed hour for both. They have their purposes, God says. A time, he says, to gain, that is to get ahead, to 
to experience advantage and profit. There's nothing wrong with gaining and getting ahead in life, with prospering financially, experiencing success. God says there's a time for that. There's a time to, to make progress, to gain, to get ahead, to have personal advantage. But he says there's also a time at life when, in essence, it's okay to lose. It's okay to actually lose ground. It's okay to lose a job. Lose a, maybe God wants you to lose that job because there's something God will teach you through the job loss. Maybe God allows you to lose a job because ultimately he's got a way better job for you. See, there's a time to gain, to get ahead. Nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't feel guilty when we gain and we shouldn't feel everything's wrong because we lose. We lose money or we lose a job or we lose an opportunity. God has purposes in these things. He can teach us things. He can take care of us through such things. A time to keep, to hold on. And I know some of you love this, especially for your garages, a time to throw away. All the married couples will discuss that on the way home. A time to tear and a time to sow. Again, they would tear their garments when they would mourn. Interesting, a time to tear and a time to sow reminded me of what God said in Hosea chapter 5 and 6 where Hosea 5 says this, going into the 6th chapter, In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. See, sometimes God will tear Sometimes God will, will, will tear, and, and again, almost like you open somebody up for surgery. It's painful to, be, to have your flesh torn open for surgery, to have some procedure done, but if you've got to get cancer out, it's good to be torn, and then to be mended afterwards and sewn back up. And sometimes, for our own benefit, you study the Bible and see how at times God will allow affliction, painful things in our lives in various forms to allow our lives, in a sense, to be torn where we find ourselves, in a sense, bleeding and hurting. But in those times, we get a lot really desperate on a whole other level. And all of a sudden, people turn to the Lord. Manasseh, the most wicked king in Israel, says, in his affliction, he humbled himself and sought the Lord. In his affliction. It was the affliction God used in his life. And at times, God will use affliction in our lives. He'll use these things to help us to his greatest benefit, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. So again, there's a time when the best thing to do is to say nothing. There is a time. Come on, man, what do you think? What do you... There's a time when saying nothing is the right thing to do in a situation. That the most powerful message you can give somebody is to say nothing to them to go silent or to be silent. There are situations where God says the wisest thing you can do is to say nothing in this moment. Don't respond. Don't put the gloves on. Don't get in the ring. Don't say it. Just, you know, interesting, the, the tongue is the only thing God built with its own cage. You know? Sometimes the best thing to do is just not say anything. It's the most helpful thing sometimes to say nothing because sometimes we always feel we have to say something. And God says, no, sometimes the appointed hour is you should go silent because maybe God needs to say something and if you say, it could mess things all up. Let God speak to people. God's able to speak to people. Now, he says there is a time to be silent, but there's also a time to speak. See, again, the, the, there's a time when the right thing to do is you need to open your mouth. And God says, you need to speak up. In this moment, you need to say something to that person. You need to confront your child. 
You need to speak to your wife. You need to speak to your husband. You need to say the truth to this person. And there's a time, God says, where the right thing to do is to speak, to speak up. They need to hear something. And, and, or whether, again, it's correctional or maybe it's you need to speak and say something encouraging or helpful to someone to remind them of some promise of God or to speak into their life. There's a time for these things. A time of love and a time of hate. The Bible says we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. And there's a time to love what God's doing. And there's a time that when we see things happening that we know God hates, you know what? We should hate it. You should look at things on the news and if you don't find yourself hating certain things that happen, I tell you something is strangely wrong with us. We should hate what God hates in what it does to people, in what people in this country and culture do to people. We should hate what sin does and what it does to lies. I'm not saying hate the people that do it, but we should hate what unfolds because of the destructive things. Because it's that hatred and animosity that if it's channeled, channeled, excuse me, if it's channeled in the love of God that will make us stand up for righteousness the way we should sometimes and will make us intervene when we're supposed to. He says a time of war and a time of peace. And again, we see this nationally. We experience these things personally. Hey, sometimes there, there's a time where, what's war? War is a series of battles. Sometimes in your life you're going through a series of battles in something. You feel like you're in the middle of a war. Hey, Maybe those battles are okay. You're gaining ground. Maybe you lose a little ground. You gain a little ground. Oh, somebody gets wounded, but then somebody comes and gets mended and healed up. There's a time when it's okay if there's a little war going on. And there are times when God just lets things go peaceful. And that's okay too. And those are seasons God allows. Verse 9 and 10, he says, What profit has the worker from that which he labors? I've seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. So Solomon kind of comes to this place where he says, you know what, here's what I've seen in all this. It's almost as if he comes to a summation. He says, here's what I've discovered. What profit is there when the worker labors so hard? And I think the idea is when he labors so hard to try and avoid certain experiences. Because you know what? Certainly I look at that list of experiences and there are certain things I like. I like to laugh. I don't like to weep. I like to game. I don't like to lose. <laughs> you know, and, and, we look, and we sometimes labor so hard and we work so hard to try and avoid experiencing certain things in life and God says, or Solomon says, look, it is so vain and profitless to work hard to try and avoid certain things because certain things in life are just unavoidable. In measure, we're going to experience a little bit of everything and that's okay. It's by God's design. He says here, that is the God-given task among which we are to be occupied. To some extent, we are to be occupied with all the things that we just read. Because it's as we're occupied in those things, it's the God-given task to live life, to experience life, that God uses those things. Verse 11, he says, I found that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautiful in its time. That word beautiful could also be translated appropriate or acceptable. God says in time, everything has its appropriate, acceptable purposes. And we end up discovering and seeing those things. Often we don't see it when we're in it. And truth be told, let me be very candid, you may never see it on this side of eternity. But the Bible I read says that in heaven, one of the things that they're saying around the throne of God is righteous and true are all your ways. And see, it may never seem beautiful in this time, but there will come a time 
where even if that's how long some of us have to wait for certain things, where we will cross the veil and be in eternity and we will look at God in eternity and say, wow, wow. Lord, that was right. What you let me experience or what happened or that event, it was right. And you took it and even when maybe something really wrong happened, God, you made it right. You took it and made something wonderful come out of it. You made it become beautiful in his time. He says, and also God has put, notice, eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work which God does from beginning to end. Solomon said, here's what I found in all these experiences. He says that, again, God uses all those things, and in the midst of them all, he says, I found this, that God's deposited eternity in the heart of every human being. That sense that even though we're experiencing everything in this life and we go through things and God lets us experience events and things in this life, he says there's something in man that through all those things awakens the reality of what God has supernaturally deposited in every heart, which is a sense of eternal destiny. Because God's put eternity because our souls are eternal in the heart of every human being that makes us as we go through things search out and realize, hmm, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than living and dying. There's got to be more than dancing and weeping. There's got to be more than getting ahead and falling behind. And God says, yup. That's what you want in your heart. It's me. And it's eternity. And for the Christian, God says, I'm using all these things for you just to get you more ready for eternity. All the stuff we're going through, I'm convinced. You know, Yes, it happens. We live out life. But I'm convinced God's using it all to just get us more ready for eternity. And you know what? In some senses, I'm becoming fine with that now. <laughs> I have no idea why this is happening. But Lord, I trust you're getting me more ready for eternity through this. You're teaching me faith. You're helping me realize what matters and doesn't. And, and, and ultimately, Acts chapter 17 tells us that God himself even puts us in the places where he does on this earth for the very purpose, it says, that we should seek the Lord and hope that we grope for him and find him. Listen, this morning, God, if you don't know him in a personal way and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, is letting you go through a lot of what you're going through, just like all the rest of us, and he's using it in your life, those experiences, to make you ultimately reach out and find him because you're realizing in your heart, there's something, man, there's something more. And God says, yes, it's eternity. You're an eternal being. And all those experiences, they'll never satisfy it. They'll never solve it. But I can solve it if you come into the eternal reality that you're an eternal being. Hell is real. Heaven is a reality, and I want you to experience it. I find it amazing that Solomon uses the words. He says, no one can find out what God's doing on this earth from beginning to end. We don't have the answers. I, you know, I've given up trying to help people always have the answers. He says, nobody really can tell what God's doing from beginning of life to the end. But I tell you this. Though I don't always know what God is doing from the beginning to the end of life, I do know this, that Jesus said we can know the beginning and the end because Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. And though I may not understand what God's doing from the beginning to the end, if I can come to know Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, everything else had its purpose. Amen?